This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two pretty awesome people, Nick White. Hey. And Paul Jaceley. Hello. Super excited to have you guys this week. Feel like I haven't had I think it, I feel like it hasn't been a Mike Nick Paul episode in a while. Or maybe that I'm just while. making that up in my head. But um, you know, I'm I'm here to ask you the question that I ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Paul. Uh, I've been good. I've been very busy this week, so I didn't do a ton of reading. I managed to squeeze in reading some books this afternoon, actually, before we hit record on the episode, uh, one of which was Captain America number 695. This is the first issue from the new creative team of Mark Wade, Chris Somney, and Colors by Matt Wilson. I say new creative team, but it's an old favorite of ours here on the show. Uh, Mark yeah, Wade yeah. and Chris Somney, they did amazing work on Black Widow, amazing work on Daredevil. They're tackling Captain America now. Mark Wade clearly loves Captain America and what Captain America represents, at least in his mind. And this issue really just felt like a palate cleanser. I mean, I didn't read any of the um, Nazi Captain America stuff as it was going on, but yeah. I certainly heard yeah. about it. And this definitely feels like, hey, that happened and it's in the past. This is Captain America that we know and love back again. Steve Rogers uh, fighting for what's right. Um, it was a fun issue. I don't know where they can go with the story. It kind of felt like almost like a one shot in that regard, which just was like setting the table again for Captain America. But okay. I mean, Chris Somney's artwork is absolutely gorgeous. Of course, uh, yeah. the fight scenes are just incredible. The colors are great. So yeah, um, I feel like it was uh, a good issue, and I'm curious where they're going to go from there. That creative team, I'll buy anything that they do. So yeah, and they're just building up to 700, right? The the point of this, I think, is just to get to 700 for what will likely be a, 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 like a 150 page issue or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah, I, I'm a sucker for those big anniversary issues, so yeah, I'm on board for that too. Um, I read some of the DC Dark Knights tie-ins, like one shots that they've been doing. I've been buying them all and letting them pile up, so I've been making my way through the stack. I read Batman: The Dawnbreaker. Uh, by that Sam Humphreys art by Ethan Van Skyver. It's um, you know the Green Lantern version of Batman, I guess. <laughs> and okay. Batman the Drowned. This is the Aqua Woman version of Batman, written by Dan Abnett, Philip Tan. I guess if you're not reading metal, none of that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> I'm very confused. So <laughs> <laughs> the the short story is that there is the DC multiverse, and then there's like a a dark version of the DC multiverse. These are all the parallel universes that exist for just a second while someone makes a decision. You know, the idea of a parallel multiple universe is like every choice you make, there's two possible universes and you just happen to choose one. The other one just sort of disappears. That's the idea. So these are all the ones that exist just for a brief second. The Joker Batman, the Batman who laughs is recruiting all of the various Batmans from these dark multiverses or the dark, dark multiverse. It's very uh, dumb, but I really like it. <laughs> and I honestly like these one shots almost more than the main series at this point. Um, we'll talk about issue three, I think, a little bit in a second here of metal. But these one shots are fun. They're kind of like just dark Elseworlds type stories. And as a yeah. kid that grew up reading DC Comics in the 90s, Elseworlds is very important and special to me. So I'm, I'm digging these one shots as silly and dumb as they can be. I feel like there's like one guy in DC editorial who's been there for maybe 20 or 30 years and his job is to poke his head out of his cubicle every one or two years and go, yeah, but what if there's a place where this guy is evil? There's like an evil (laughs) version of him and then he just goes back into hibernation for like two more years. 
you know i th- I, I think that <laughs> yeah. that guy exists because boy oh boy does howdy does he have a job he uh <laughs> so this is like the Marvel what if scenario books, right? Like where they're just kind of saying, what if this had happened and it's a one shot and it's a one and done kind of thing. Well, like DC well, has yeah. Elseworlds Metal. that's kind of established. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Elseworlds, yeah, that was a particular like brand in the 90s and early 2000s. They don't really have that anymore, but it's a it's a part of the DC like lore. These like what if stories, or not what if, but like um, uh, imaginary stories. That's what they used just to be called in the 60s. Really different like, takes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that they called the issues in the 60s would be called, oh, this is an imaginary story. It's like, well, aren't they all imaginary stories? <laughs> and then they're like, shut up, Paul. <laughs> you ass. <laughs> and then um, uh, finally, I read Batman and the Outsiders Volume 1. This is a collection of the early 1980s Batman and the Outsiders series by Mike W. Barr, art by Jim Aparo. These are like my version of comfort food in comics book form you know okay you know pre-crisis dc universe stuff even if i didn't read it as a kid i don't really have that much nostalgia for the the characters or the stories themselves but something about the way they're written and the way they look just is very like comforting to me especially jim aparo's artwork when i think of batman i picture the jim aparo batman i mean just that gray and blue uniform the way he's drawn that's what Batman looks like to me. So this is a lot of fun to read. Go back and read this stuff. Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, you've got um, Batman teaming up with Black Lightning, Halo, Katana, Metamorpho, and Geoforce. That's an all-star team right there. So What? <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I've that been reading. I, I really enjoy that stuff. Yeah, they're just fun issues to burn through. Read a, you know, read a bunch in a chunk. So fun stuff. Um, what about you, Nick? Um, for me, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a real busy week over here. Um, for better or for worse, my, my work, uh, does involve, um, fluxes and, and how much needs to be done based on the holidays. And so, uh, we're getting ready for Thanksgiving over at the, uh, the paper. And so, um, there's been a lot of preparation going on and a lot of days where we're there for more hours than intended. But, uh, uh, this is normally where I'd say things will die down and get easier but christmas is right around the corner so um yep <laughs> not anytime <laughs> soon nick's, nick's not going to be in the show because he hasn't read any comic books i think yeah, that's what yeah. he's trying to say <laughs> yeah, yeah. no amazingly enough I, I still managed to get some some reading done I, I think i've more or less figured out my my uh unconscious reading pattern which is uh get close when I like fall behind, get close to present, maybe like one or two issues off, but like never actually get up to date. Like I think that's sort <laughs> like, of that's like the unspoken rule. Mm-hmm. It's like I could, but then like I'll never have any issues left over if I want them. Yeah, but you're never gonna read them. Okay, well, fine. Um, so case in point, <laughs> I have Rebels number eight sitting on my shelf, but I'm here to talk about Rebels number seven. Uh, these free and independent states. Uh, this is the second to last issue of Brian Wood's second miniseries of the uh, Rebels line. Um, Brian Wood is one of those writers that's known for having sort of a stable of artists that and cover artists as well that tend to follow him around, and he uses them uh, pretty frequently from from uh, you know Jerry Brown to. Um, uh, what's another good one? Tristan Jones, uh, Andrea Moody. Uh, these guys follow him around a lot, but this issue actually features a new artist whose name is Luca Casalanguida. Um, 
and uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of at least American credits to his name. Um, he did draw the Hammerhead and Kill Chain arcs of James Bond for Dynamite, which a uh, little plug here because this one's actually going to work. Uh, there's currently a James Bond Humble Bundle sale uh, going on that started on Wednesday. By the time that you guys hear this show, it'll only be a week old. So if you want to get in on, in on that, you'll still have a week. So um you're welcome. Um, <laughs> I realized so many times on this show, it's like, hey, I got this in a sale. And then listeners are like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go pick it up. And it like ended like six days before. So, you know, right. I'm, I'm, I'm looking out for you and your wallet can apologize to me later. Um, uh, it was an interesting issue. I actually really enjoyed the art. Uh, this issue surrounds a pair, uh, a young brother and sister who sort of... Um, are living on their own. Uh, I believe their parents, I don't remember what they died from, but it's like the 1700s, so like everybody's dying from all sorts of shit. Uh, Nick, that was the Black Plague. That was before that. Look, it's still the 1700s. No one has penicillin, okay? People are dying. Right, and, right. Um, so they're left to sort of run the farm by themselves, and at one point um, a British soldier trespasses and they shoot him because uh, that's what you do. Um, and they find, um, I think he's like a courier or something. He's got plans on him. And they find out that he was sent to report on a shipwreck um, in New York City. Um, and apparently has a metric fuck ton of gold on it. And it has to do with the HMS, the HMS Husser which you can Wikipedia it. It's a real thing. Um, I'm sure Nicolas Cage will be treasure hunting soon enough trying to find it. But um, yeah, it's kind of a persistent urban legend, and, and Brian Wood plays around a lot with that um, and sort of takes you know the little smidgen of history that's there and then and does some narrative embellishment um, like he normally does. So um, right. really looking forward uh, to seeing how that series ends. Um, I'll quick which talk you could about- do right now. You could do yeah, right I now. Could. You could, right. You I could. I won't. Go read it, but yeah, you won't. But, uh, yeah, it's like, then I won't have any more to read. There, yeah, there yeah. won't be yeah. any more left. Um, I read Future Quest Presents number two. Uh, this continues to be the um, follow-up to Future Quest, also written by Jeff Parker. However, this time, instead of Doc Shaner on art, we have Ariel Olivetti, who mm-hmm. is a very, very, very different artist. Um, yeah. But yeah. I love both of them a lot uh, for, for, you know, for different reasons. Um, and I think what this, what Olivetti brings is it seems to be more of a 1950s sci-fi serial in tone, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to Future Quest, which honestly felt more like a Saturday morning cartoon um, with both just the general tone and, and the art uh, and just a mashup of anything and everything possible. Um, I still really, really like this series. I realize it's probably getting even less publicity than Future Quest was, so who knows how long this will last. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, it's there. One of the larger ones I want to briefly talk about is I did read Batman Year One. This is the OGN from Jeff Johns and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Frank? Yeah, Gary Frank. Yeah. Gary Frank. Oh, okay, yeah. The yeah. guy who's doing Doom... And I read this because, of course, Doomsday Clock is coming out, and when I can, or if I have the appropriate books, if something new is coming out, I try to read something by the same team. So this was the closest thing I could find. Um, you know, we make fun of these OGNs. We say, you know, we really wish things were in OGA for, uh, you know, OGN format, but 
they never sell if they do and even when they do come out as mike will attest a lot of the marvel ones are absolutely terrible um and just largely inconsequential yeah. to canon etc etc expensive blah 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 um so i was pretty skeptical about this book but i actually really actually enjoyed this book um jeff johns does a lot of interesting stuff with it um thomas wayne is running for mayor in this and mm-hmm. alfred is actually mm-hmm. his old war buddy who comes back to run security for him because of course there have been threats against him because it's gotham it's just part and parcel of living there everyone wants you dead um and we you know obviously have a we reinvent his parents death etc etc and it's claimed that um, Mayor Cobblepot, which, you know, connect the dots on that, who won the election, went on to kill um, Thomas Wayne. Uh, I really like the artwork. It reminds me a bit of Brian Boland. It reminds me a bit of even, um, who's the other guy that comes to mind a little bit? Frank Quietly, with some of the shading mm-hmm. and sketching that, that uh, Frank does. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this book. Uh, the, he, he mashes up so many other interesting things. Um, Harvey Dent uh, is now actually uh, a pair of twins. It's Harvey and his sister. And um, Commissioner Gordon, I think, is just a lieutenant in this book, and he's, like, crooked as hell. Um, and his partner, Harvey Bullock, is actually this really clean-cut, not-at-all-slovenly-looking, like, celebrity detective who used to host a TV show, um, and he's um, gotten a transfer from L.A. because he wants to solve the Wayne case. So it's it's interesting <laughs> beyond that. Like, Nick is Batman in this book. Yes, he is in this book. Uh, and it's also, like, Failure Batman, which is, like, my favorite Batman stories. So, like, the grappling hook, you know, he shoots it off and all the parts fly all over the place and it doesn't work. And he falls and ends up, you know, in a pile of trash bags right next to the trash can that no one wanted to right. put the trash bags in. That's just how it works. And he's just generally a goddamn mess. And, like, those are my favorite Batman stories. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like untrained like non-master generally batman. terrible uh batman yeah um so alfred has to set him straight uh and the book ends with a <laughs> very very violent act so um read this book it's a uh, pretty dark in some ways but also um like reinventing redoing the batman origin story is something i would never ever want to do myself that god i wouldn't even want to touch that but uh yeah john's at mm-hmm. least attempts it um, otherwise, real quick, uh, Grass Kings number eight, one shot, whatever. It was okay. Finally, because I know Paul said we we're going to talk about metal, I just want to say this. <laughs> I just read DC Metal number three, mm-hmm. and I hate it when this happens. We talk all the time about how authors of events say um, you only need to read the main book. Yes, there's tie ins. Yes, there's one shots. Yes, there's a subplot that's rotating through a bunch of other books, but you only need to read the main book. And up until Metal 3, I genuinely felt like that was true of Metal. With Metal 3, it does not feel that way anymore. I was so frequently lost, and there were so many little editor's notes of see this, see this, see this. I thought this was a fucking book from the 90s. It was. I thought it was like a... It was almost like satire. Like, there were so many of them. I was like... Is this satire? Is this real? I don't know anymore. Um, like the I, bottom of your the various pages, just need a footnote section. Like yeah. you not, get in, yeah, a, in a novel. Yeah. <laughs> just give me a work cited, please. I need it now. Um, <laughs> and I, I smugly thought to myself, I'll wait until this whole goddamn thing gets collected in a nice hardcover trade and read it then. But now, mm-hmm. like 
I don't feel like I'm missing out. I'm one step beyond that. I'm like fucking confused. So yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my take on it. That's what I read. I'm, I'm kind of frustrated. I didn't think Scott Snyder was going to do me wrong on this, but I should have realized from how many goddamn uh, supplementary issues were out there that it was, it was just a reality of the situation. I, you know, Nick, I'm just going to say that I don't know how much those one shots would really help because I read most of them, at least the ones between issues two and three of the main metal series. And mm-hmm. I still thought metal issue three was kind of a, a mess. I just think oh, it's just yeah. a poorly written comic. Uh, I'm just so kind of excited. Yeah. I'm so excited to read this when it comes out and be like, what the fuck is happening, you guys? <laughs> no, I, 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 I have to agree with you, Paul. I think in some ways it wouldn't, reading those wouldn't have been enough to yeah. fix the sheer level of um, goddamn confusion in that book. So um, it's still pretty, yeah. but uh, it's pretty confusing. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Mike? Nice. Uh, so for me, I read just a few things. I read Wicked and Divine 33. Uh, I won't say anything about it because it is the big, huge, holy shit moment of the series. It took us 33 issues to get here, and everything's coming full circle, and I now I need to go back and reread the whole book because I missed something, and the big reveal was was huge, and I want to see if the actual for, the actual foreshadowing for it is is as existent as people claim out there on the internet. So I will, I'm not going to say anything further than that. Uh, I read Ringside 13 because I'm still reading this book, apparently. <laughs> um, and this book took a hard left turn, and I don't know what happened, but I think who I think there's Joe Keating and Nick Barber who are on this book. They either got fan feedback or they listened to this show, and they heard <laughs> me talking about it. Uh, and they started to steer things back towards wrestling, which I very much appreciate. It took, it took them... 12 issues but they're finally back to wrestling so (laughs) all right so by 13 you're getting back into the more of the wrestling stuff and i am glad that they are i'm glad that i stuck with it because i think that the narrative that's behind the b story or i guess the a story that's happening in the book is going to fuel the b story and make it more like make infuse those two storylines together Mm -hmm. um so i i'm digging it Okay. Um, and I have been like, like don't get me wrong. I've kind of complained about this book, but all, all in all, I think rereading. I think I reread issues one through ten when eleven came out, and I liked the direction that they went. And then things got really violent, and now it's starting to like spin back and go. See, this is all. This all had a purpose. So I appreciate that. Um, I read Generation Gone number two, and I don't know what to think about it, and I feel really scared. And I need to read issue three. Like I'm very behind on this book. I think I'm an issue or two behind. And I, I don't know, like, I just feel like there's, there's a moment in the opening pages of issue two, and it perfectly defines how I'm feeling, which is one of the characters learns how to fly or gets this power to fly and she's crying. And I'm like, that's exactly how I feel. I'm excited, but also scared. Um, (laughs) What what is this book? (laughs) This is Generation Gone. It's uh, Alice Cott and I I didn't write down the credits for this, so I apologize, but it's an Alice Cott book. And it's somebody learns that you can hack human DNA. And so as a test run, uh, the, the not so not sure if he's a bad guy, good guy, um, plays this audio message that gives these three millennials, I'm just going to call them what they are, uh, the superpowers. And we don't know what their superpowers are yet. So it's an image. This is an image book. And so it's kind of all out there. It kind of reminds me of how I felt about... 
um, Jupiter's Legacy for some reason. They're not the same book. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say they're the same book, but I have the same feeling into the, like about them where I'm kind of like, where's this going? You really hooked me on the premise. What's actually happening here? Um, and so I should have known going into an Alex Cott book that that's how I was going to feel. Um, but I still have faith that something like Zero is going to come out of this guy again. <laughs> so I'm re- I read all of his books. You're probably going to uh, get the surface. Sorry, bud. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I, the surface I think was a totally different thing. I, I could do a whole oh, it was definitely a different episode thing. about just the in- intricacies of the surface and what happened. Um, so I won't I won't go into it now. But mm-hmm. Generation Gone is kind of weird. I'm still trying it hesitantly. Um, and then uh, I guess the last two things I read, I read Saga, set 47, 48, nothing really to say. I read it. I'm up to date. Um, things are happening as always. Really excited to see if this book is going to end at issue 60 and even how it's going to end because I feel like even after 47, 48 issues, there's still so much more to be told about Hazel and Marco and Alana that if it ends at 60, it better be damn good. <laughs> Um, uh, and yeah, the last thing I read was, uh, Invincible number 142, and all I want to do is cry. It just, I can't believe this book is coming to an end. 142 was so powerful, and I thought 141 was more, was powerful. The next two issues are going to break my goddamn heart. I know it. (laughs) So, yeah, that's, that's me. (laughs) Um... I guess, yeah, so let's let's talk about comic books that are coming out this upcoming week. Comic books are going to be released on November 22nd, 2017. Paul, let's start with you because Nick's pick I've got a lot of questions about. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so I was very close to picking the same thing as Nick, so, uh, but... Okay. And so okay. instead, I decided to pick Doom Patrol number nine. I'm very excited for this book. I believe this was originally scheduled to come out in July, so I'm glad it's finally arriving on your shelves. Yeah, Doom Patrol is perennially late, and I don't mind. I actually really all of young I, animal books are weird with their <laughs> schedules. Yeah, yeah. I think the only one that's actually stuck monthly is um, Mother Panic, and Cave Carson was close, but Mother Panic's been coming out regularly. So interesting that all the other books, Cave Carson and Mother Panic, um, they have sort of wrapped up their first arc or their second arc to set up for the uh, the Milk Wars, which I think I hinted at last time I was on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which are coming uh-huh. in December. Doom Patrol is obviously way behind, so I'm kind of curious how they're going to fix that gap. But I really like this book. I think Nick Darrington's artwork is fantastic. I think Gerard Way is doing something really interesting with the Doom Patrol concept. You know, the Doom Patrol is a it's a safe space for people that don't belong anywhere else. And that's kind of what he's made this book into, this sort of cast of misfits. And you have the old Doom Patrol characters like Robot Man and uh, Negative Man, um, Crazy Jane. They're there, but they're not as important as the new characters he's introducing. I think he's sort of using the idea of the Doom Patrol as a way to introduce new characters and ideas. And that's really smart. So of try to rehash what Grant Morrison did with his Doom Patrol run. So I'm excited for this book. I wish it came out more regularly. And it's definitely one of those books that I think sitting down and reading in a chunk or reading in a trade would probably be better than issue to issue. But if you're not reading, I think it's well worth tracking down that first trade because it's a fantastic book. Yeah, I've been... I've been sitting, I've been trying to tell myself I need to read the Grant Morrison run of Doom mm-hmm. Patrol. Then I can read this new series so that I can be fully in the know. But that's yeah. a lot of comics. Uh, maybe I'll just try that. Maybe I'll by the next time you guys are both on the show, we can have a full blown Doom Patrol discussion or something. Yeah, I would love um, that. Yeah. Maybe it'll just be me and Paul and Nick. You can you can just add in some color commentary. But yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> fine. Uh, well, Nick, Nick, what's your pick for this week? Because uh, I already know and I have a lot of questions. 
Sure. So it's going to be Doomsday Clock. This, of course, is from Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. Um, this is a maxi series, uh, 12 issues, and is going to attempt to try to deal head on with some of what um, Jeff Johns and, and also Gary Frank partially did the art for um, in, oh, what was that called? Um, DC Universe Rebirth Number 1 which came out all the way back in May of 2016. Um, for those who didn't read it, it was just a massive 80-page one-shot that sort of set up the DC Rebirth universe and, and introduced some new-slash-old characters um, and laid some interesting, largely dormant plot threads that we've seen peek out here and there a little bit, I think, in Action Comics, a little bit in Batman, if you remember the little cameo of, um, what is it, Saturn Girl from Legion of Superheroes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's just, it's it's been interesting because it's been subtle and it's been slowly creeping up um, out of time in all sorts of different books uh, to the point that if you really aren't invested in DC, which I'm certainly not about to say you need to be all in, I'm not, I know most of us on this show aren't, um, but if you aren't super, super vested in DC, um, you're largely not seeing all of it developing. Um, and in that regard, uh, this is pretty exciting because Jeff Johns hasn't really offhand, I want to say Jeff Johns has not done a DC book since that one shot because um, the nice executives over at WB wanted him to be chief creative, blah, 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 uh, and basically told him he needed to stop writing um, comic books uh, to focus on that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, what's the core premise here? It's basically Watchmen meets DC Universe, which really doesn't sound appealing and actually is quite baffling and weird. I mean, if you if you just take, you know, standalone original graphic, well, I guess it wasn't an OGN, it was released in individual issues. If you go take, yeah. you know, a largely standalone um, graphic novel of sorts uh, published by a, a big publisher and just try to smash it into that publisher's universe, it's 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 weird. And it's even weirder yeah, when you realize... Button. Yeah, but the button. But that's, oh, that's right. And we also had the button, and the button was probably the most focused, most on the nose um, that we've had uh, regarding this whole thing to this point. The button, of course, being the Batman Flash crossover, and it's it's, it's just weird, especially because Watchmen is such a, for better or for worse, I don't think it's you know I, I don't think the book walks on water like some people do, but um, it's sort of its own you know it's behind glass in a museum, right? It's not something that ends up getting smashed into the publisher that just so happened to publish its main universe. Anyway, I'm really in support of this book, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> that's why you're picking it up this yeah, week, right? Yeah, that's why, that's why it's my pick of the week. Everyone go get it. I hate it, probably. Um, so, of course, <laughs> Jeff Johns is wanting to explore the dichotomy between Superman, um, a.k.a. the alien that learned to empathize with humanity, and Dr. Manhattan, the once human who is now a far cry from being anything even slightly close to human. So um, that's the thing. I, I just want to read this quote because I love when people plug their stuff and it sounds like bullshit. So um, Jeff Johns at SDCC described the book as, quote, being about everything, which, um, great. Thank okay. you, Jeff Johns. He goes on to say, <laughs> cynicism, opportunity, corruption, the writer said, lies and truth, love, the lengths to which the lengths people will go to for love. 
Hope, optimism, decay. Are all our best days behind us or ahead of us? What is the truth? Do people give up? Is it okay to give up? When do you give up? When do you when don't you give up? All sorts of things about how I think we're all feeling. He then went on for an impromptu forty eight minute beat poetry session that really went on for about forty seven <laughs> minutes too long. Um that last yeah, part was me. Sure because I'm funny. Nope. And uh, the rest was definitely all something Jeff John said, because it sounds like bullshit. Um, look, it's a maxi-series. I like maxi-series. There's no tie-ins. I think that's great. I think Jeff Johns is a great, uh, crazy, balls-to-the-wall, super fun writer. I think it's going to be dumb, though. <laughs> so I, I'm really curious as to what do you guys think this is going to be? Like, just like, <laughs> just, just a real just quick summary in your mind what do you think doomsday clock is going to be well i've seen the first six pages um with just pencils i don't know paul have you seen those yep yep and they take place in 92 and you learn that uh adrian veit adrian veit ozymandias which i mean uh, is it bad to give away spoilers from Watchmen? I, I that can't be the, a problem. It, right? no, okay, no, spoiler no. alerts for a thirty-year-old comic book. I think we're <laughs> yeah, safe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he's he's on the run. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, because they've you know figured out that he was behind the whole mess. Yeah, uh, and no one's no one's been able to find him. Uh, no one knows where Night Owl went. No one knows where. Um, uh, Rorschach went. No one knows where Silk, Spe- Silk Spectre is. Um, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm intrigued by, by the idea of them incorporating Watchmen into the DC universe. Like, I think that is a really interesting idea. And it's far more interesting than before Watchmen was mm-hmm. to me, which sure, I never, never sure. read. So I think they, Jeff Johns could do something very interesting. And I think, you know, the, the DC rebirth, that one shot and th- the little hints we've seen that Nick mentioned, there's this idea that someone was rewriting or messing with the oh, DC timeline. Right. And it's, it's got to be Dr. Manhattan. Right. The whole I'm insinuation assuming. that the new 52 yeah. was actually a dark corruption of, yeah. of the timeline. Yeah. Um, yeah. From resetting flashpoint, which everyone get out their notebooks. There, there'll be a test on this. Uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing that I'm wondering, like how much of DC's history are they going to really factor into this book? Because based on what I read from the DC universe rebirth, number one issue, it felt like they were trying to say, all right, let's take the last 20 years of continuity and make it all super relevant in a way that make it like that we can wrap up with a nice bow by saying it was all Dr. Manhattan or it was some mm-hmm. unknown character or thing that was a part of Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really curious to see like, because it, it seems like everything is spanning from what, Final Crisis onward and that is part of the corruption or is it just that it's it was rebirth that was or, or sorry it was new 52 that was the corruption because it's it, it's all over the place yeah i think it's got to be new 52 i think what's interesting uh is that final crisis was largely ignored all of the ideas that mm-hmm. Graham morrison kind of you know was hinting at never really got followed up on so i think the new well, 52 I mean, was, metal is kind of doing that right now yeah it is now but yeah that I think the new fifty two was a way to streamline the 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 publishing the product, you know, for making mm-hmm. it appealing to mm-hmm. new readers. And the problem was DC has such a rich history with the multiverse that those old ideas that we were supposed to ignore kept creeping back in. You know, writers would keep reincorporating all this stuff. So they realized, yeah. like, hey, people really love all those old stories, the pre-crisis stuff and the crisis on infinite earth stuff, multiverse stuff. So it brought back the multiverse. So I guess 
you know, I love the messiness of the DC universe in that sense. I love that you have multiversity and, you know, this, the doomsday clock, whatever it's going to be. It's also just a fascinating mishmash of ideas that you could spend years sort of figuring out how it all fits together. And that's, I guess, is what Jeff Johns <laughs> is doing now. And I'm yeah. just a sucker for that stuff. I, I'm always curious about how they explain all these. Inco- they want to explain things that don't really need to be explained. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a yeah. comic book fan of a certain stripe, I'm always interested in that. Gotcha. I, I always love looking back on comics from 20 or 30 years ago and seeing all these weird plot holes and loose ends and weird unresolved mashups and all this crazy shit that never really gets cleanly resolved. And then mm-hmm. just thinking to myself, oh man, that never happens anymore. So it's exciting that we're actually <laughs> going to live through one of these crazy fuck ups ourselves. Like the idea that it's right <laughs> around the corner and we're going to mm-hmm. actually be able to say, like, hey, I saw how this fucking mess gets made. Like I got to see it firsthand. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's mm-hmm. that's 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 exciting to me. But the the idea that like uh, Doctor Manhattan is is now the the personification of like DC editorial over the years. Yeah. You know that he's that's, yeah, it's DC editorial's fault. Nope, it was Doctor Manhattan. Well, they're basically the both. They're basically both the same thing. They're they're not human and they're not very you know they're not receptive to change or or you know public <laughs> needs. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just kidding, DC editorial, but uh. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Fun. We'll see. Yeah, Honestly, we'll yeah. See. This this could go anywhere. Honestly, this is this is one of those books. It's just like metal. I'm I'm very interested, and I ha- if only because of the hype and the weirdness around it. Mm-hmm. Um, in that I I don't have any major vestment, but I know enough to think that I could maybe jump in and be like and ask the right questions to get answers. So. Well, um, I, I'm mostly just yeah. curious, just really yeah. curious, because Marvel doesn't do this anymore. They Marvel's got a very hard line about continuity and stuff, and I think DC's mm-hmm. a little bit more flimsy, and yeah. it makes it a little bit a little bit more fun in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. P- people need to remember that Jeff Johns said that this whole rebirth thing was actually sort of a more of a like a big two year cycle of sorts, and so with Doomsday Clock largely making up that second year of the two so it'll be interesting right. to see where more importantly where jeff john sees this ending and where he sees the future of the dc universe emerging from it because clearly yeah. i think the next big step for dc as a whole universe will emerge from from doomsday clock so definitely um well my pick for this week really quick uh <laughs> uh is it doomsday six? clock because that would no be it's convenient. not it's not Okay. It's Rat Queens number six. This is Curtis Weeb and Owen Gianni. I'm still reading this is the question that I have for myself. Um, issue, like, the, the thing that keeps me coming back is the specials. Like, the the Orc Dave special really, like, made me so happy in a lot of ways that I'm like, all right, there, there's, still some, there's still some light in this darkness and weirdness. <laughs> so I'm on board. Um, and that's all I'll really say about it because there's nothing more to be said about in issue six, I think, in the middle of an arc, other than I'm still reading it and I'm I'm not hating it as much as I thought I was going to um, when I started at issue one. Okay. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's how you are with comics, right? <laughs> yeah.
this week on I Read Comic Books, we're going to be talking about dystopian comic books and what the deal is with those types of books. I feel like I should have opened this with a Seinfeld, like, what's the deal with dystopian comic books? Um, this is a topic that we've been sitting on for a little while, um, if only because I keep moving it around in our schedule, and I don't know why. Not that I'm, a, I'm scared to discuss it, but it's always one of those, like, eh, this, this isn't really time sensitive. This isn't mm-hmm. something that we need to talk about immediately because of you know relevant news. Um, but are we living in a dystopia right now? That's the question. Um, no, I mean, but in all in all honesty, though, this is something that I think we we've seen a lot of in the most in in recent history in comic books. We've seen a lot of independent books that have shown up um, recently at like Image or Boom or Oni about these awful future worlds where some big thing has happened and now the world's completely different. If you thought that you understood how the world works, you know, now things have completely changed or they exist in like another dimension that you can kind of understand but you need things spelled out and you can see why it's a wasteland or it's an awful place. And it's in video games, it's in movies too but we're going to try to focus in a little bit on comic books today. So we we've got like a, a short list. I think the first things that came to mind for me were like Hinterkind or the Massive or even something like Sweet Tooth. Um, those are good examples. Seven to Eternity, I think, is another example of those types of books, as well as like Lazarus and Judge Dread. Um, I'm not going to try to steal your entire list, Nick. So um, <laughs> let me let me open up the let me yep. open up the board here uh, to you guys to say or open up the floor, I should say. Um, to see what you guys think, like what's what's the deal with dystopian comic books? Let's, let's start with you, Nick. <laughs> well, uh, to to sort of uh, latch on to your introduction in a way, um, I, I sort of figured we were we just continue to table this topic because with every week and every month, it just becomes more and more increasingly relevant until you know after we sit on it for too long, <laughs> it'll just become where we are. Like it'll be like, what's the well, deal with the world today? Yeah, this is <laughs> yeah. this is where we are. So. Um, no, I, I, I think you're completely right. It's, uh, it's certainly a very, very, um, it's, it's a topic that creators are interested in these days. It's a topic that readers and, and consumers of media are, are very interested in. And, um, so it sort of begs the question of why, why that is. And so with that in mind, I did a little bit of researching, which is just shorthand for me flailing a couple Google searches, uh, out there and just seeing what I get. Um, and then mm-hmm. hoping that no one ever, you know, looks through my like 17 different permutations of that, trying to get the right results. Um, and I, <laughs> why blah, 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 question mark. Um, uh, so I, I read an article, um, uh, from the New York daily news. Yes, I know just five eye rolls back to back there, um, called we're doomed. Uh, why is Hollywood so obsessed with the apocalypse? Uh, and in that, um, Karen Ritzenhoff, who is a professor of communication at Central Connecticut State, uh, and she's the author of a book called The Apocalypse in Film, which, of course, that's film. That's not comic books. Look, it's it's consumed media. Just shut up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, she wrote that, um, well, I, it says that basically um, she, along with many other scholars, have posited that the semi-recent proliferation of end-of-day scenarios Um, has its recent boom because of 9-11. She writes that 9-11 is the incision in the American consciousness that changed everything, which which I think is kind of interesting. You can certainly see that with some creators more than others. People frequently talk about how much 9-11 changed Frank Miller, 
Um, you know, it's not like he was doing sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and everything Lisa Frank before 9-11, and, and now it's just 300 for eternity. Um, but you know, there was certainly a, a darker shift and maybe even a racially tinged uh, shift with some of his stuff like holy terror. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. maybe is a strong word. Yeah, I, would say I was I was trying definitely. to hedge <laughs> yeah. hedge my bets and just not flat out <laughs> pronounce it that boldly. But yes, uh, sure, you sure. could, you probably could, you probably should. Um, so so I found that interesting that that a lot of people have um, a lot of professors and, and and critics have have linked the most recent surge to um, 9-11, which. Um, you know that's that's food for thought, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think that's an unfounded. I mean, like I don't think that's rooted in any kind of bad research or, or thought. Because if you think about the response to any major act of war or terrorism across the globe, you think of anything that came out of it comes out of Europe. A lot of times is a response to or was for a little while to World War II um, or other localized wars mm-hmm. that maybe weren't on a global scale but were still big things and you see like this terrible awful thing happen and then you get more crazy weird things like being call you know you get something like you know mouse for instance actually, i don't mm-hmm. think mouse was an actual european comic but nonetheless the a lot of these things do seem to be responses to a terrible awful thing and then using these dystopian books as like commentary in some ways to say like well this is if you took that to an extreme version or what if the bomb had gone off in this major metroplex instead of you know somewhere in an isolated region um to say like this is the end result of something and i think that's where something like judge dread comes in where it's like what if the government decided to give these police officers the ability to be the judge, jury, and executioner, um, because they, you know, the, that's how the state runs, and they just want complete control over the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those books do well because, for some reason, that resonates in folks, right? Yeah, and I, th- I think you hinted at it there, Mike. The idea that it is a form of social commentary on contemporary times, you know. So, the most famous dystopian, you know, work of fiction, of course, is 1984. By George Orwell, and that's of course him commenting on the state of the world in 1948. Even though it's set mm-hmm. in the future, it's about what's happening right in front of him. And Judge Dredd is a really great example. I think that's one of the most interesting and successful, obviously, dystopian books. It's been going on for 40 years now. And mm-hmm. what makes Judge Dredd so fascinating to me is that it's the Judge Dredd stories have been basically happening in real time. So right. Judge Dredd is 40 years older than he was when he first appeared. You know, we've seen how much Mega City 1 has changed in those 40 years. Uh, society's deteriorated even more in the past 40 years. And all of the events that take place in Judge Dredd, like, build one on the other. So an event like the Apocalypse War, which is one, probably one of the biggest, most famous Judge Dredd stories, that had a, a significant impact on the story itself. It wasn't just speculative fiction. The creators for Judge Dredd over the past 40 years have really used this to make it a continuing commentary on the world we live in as it's changed over the past 40 years. And I think another thing that's so interesting about Judge Dredd and, and maybe um, is, is also true of other apocalyptic um, fiction and, and, and media uh, is that people's response to it really varies and and something mm-hmm. like with something like judge Dredd, not everybody sees that as a commentary on the perils of you know increasing fascism and and the consolidation of power 
Um, some people strictly lump Judge Dredd into the action-adventure thing, um, yeah. and they see him as a hero when he is actually more of a, a, a villain or just a, a, a pawn, in a way, yeah. of, of the state, um, mm-hmm. which is always kind of disturbing because you have people that their takeaway from this <laughs> dystopian future is not my goodness we need to pre- prevent this it's mm-hmm. gee if there's a way that i can expedite arriving at that point that sounds pretty sweet <laughs> yeah. like you know because yeah. people are always like oh man i can't wait for the zombie apocalypse i'm i'm so ready and <laughs> i always make note of those people because i I want to make sure that if and when those things happen, I'm nowhere near those people. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's like, they're like, you probably had a hand in this happening. Um, which <laughs> it's interesting. Cause I read another article um, that was, that was written uh, for scientific American uh, around the time of the whole Mayan calendar hubbub. If you remember that uh, December oh 21st, 2012, the John Cusack mm-hmm. John movie. Cusack, um, the, does that, that a, Yeah, yeah, that was. It was the, just um, called 2012. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I, I wish more movies would just name themselves after years, just so it just gets really confusing. You remember when 2014 came out? Wait, was did, that like, 2014? 2014, one or the year? You're talking or? about the one with with Joan Rivers as the protagonist? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, movies need to have years as names and then just have, like, numbers as sequels. So it's like, oh, did you see 2018-3? What? Do you, wait, what? <laughs> so anyway, just, just some advice for the future. That's a fun dystopian um, world to live in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but they were, um, they wrote, there was an article written called Psychology Reveals the Comforts of the Apocalypse. Uh, and in it, they, they talked to a psychiatrist who works for um, Harvard Medical School um, uh, Stephen Schultzman, uh, and he said that in speaking with patients, uh, quote, uh, he has noticed that people frequently romanticize the end times. Uh, they imagine surviving, thriving, and going back to nature. So, like I said, there are people that see this shit and they're like, gee, I kind of want that. Uh, he said that the pressures and anxieties of the modern day life and society um, results in such that, quote, all of this uncertainty and all of this fear comes together and people think maybe life would be better after a disaster. So, I mean, yeah, and you can kind of spin this both ways, right? Like some people like see it as the possibility for um, a fresh start. Or, or, or the idea that society might, you know, uh, have a, a palate cleansing, as morbid as that sounds, and they think of that as kind of refreshing. And then, like I said, there are other people that look at that and they go, like, like that's something I really want to be in. You know, I really want to be able to run around and you know, <laughs> mow over zombies with my pickup truck and, and cause property damage and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, look, look, people, The Walking Dead has been on TV for how many years now? Like, clearly we're Seven? obsessed with this shit. I think it's yeah. like nine. I don't know. Um, but it's it's definitely something to reflect on because uh, there is something appealing about that. I mean, it's it's the reason that these, these dumb Fallout <laughs> games have been doing so well recently. <laughs> See, I, I don't think that... <laughs> I feel like we're taking a really weird stance here. Yeah. Because sure. when, you, when you think about... Look, buddy, I'm just reading disasters. what I found on the internet, okay? I, I understand, I understand. You can't blame me for... But is are articles like this like even further romancing the idea... Or romanticizing... Romancing. Are they further romanticizing <laughs> romancing these ideas? 
and uh, so it's it's almost like. But what I'm getting at is is when these actual disasters and this bad shit happens, and I'm not talking like full blown world apocalypse. I'm talking sure. about a hurricane hits a city. Nothing gets better after that. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. nothing is improved because I quote unquote clean slate my ass. Like I. I so what you're saying think... is it needs to be all or nothing. Like is that is that my no, takeaway I, I from here? Is Mike size... Rappin wants full annihilation or nothing? None of this half assed shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, seeing that we've never truly experienced the full annihilation like uh-huh, that, I can't uh-huh. really speak to it. Right. But I'm not trying That's to. Fair. I, what I'm getting at here is that this is like this is a very weird stance to be in because nothing good comes out of disaster. You know, it's just more pain and hardship, and we have to rebuild things. And we take. I think the idea is that we're taking a lot of this stuff for granted. Um, all the niceties and the everything that we in infrastructure that we we live in mm-hmm. um and so when, when you when you talk about something like a zombie apocalypse or a 2012 scenario where the world kind of restarts mm-hmm. um it's it's a it's all fantasy like there's no way that you could think oh well humans will persevere and they're going to be like you know there's going to be this massive nuclear war and then everyone's going to come out and everything's going to be fine because when you look at a game like fallout or you look at something like hinterkind or why the last man like it's not a good time for anybody. Yeah. Like, even the people that are enjoying themselves are like the maniacs, and they're they're the people cross. that are thriving in chaos. <laughs> yeah, Cross is a sure another terrible good example. Um, <laughs> I mean, but like the massive, for instance, is another example, and this is why it came to mind because you know the world has this cataclysmic event that affects everything, and no one's doing well. Like right. even the people that mm-hmm. are profiting from some sort of war or hoarding all of the gas mm-hmm. that people need, like even they're having a bad time. So right. whatever kind of whatever kind of like oh if only we could just get a, a clean slate. A clean slate to me would be erasing all my student loan debt. That's a clean <laughs> slate for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't need the world to end. Aider and better need, to world apocalypse. I need the yeah. end of Fight Club the movie to happen so all my credit card and, and loan debt goes away. That's what I need to happen. <laughs> well, no, I, I think you're right. And I think to, to attempt to rope it back to comics a little, I think the massive is great because it basically says uh, if this sort of shit happens, like, like, it's not going... This isn't the fucking rapture, okay? Like, the bad people... Not all the bad people are going away. The the ideologies and the and 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 the um, you know the the dogma that's out there that you know really pushes people to hate other people and to hate other groups and whatnot. Like that's not necessarily going away. Like all of that shit is still sticking around. It's probably even going to be worse now because the support structures that would have helped you and put up a buffer between you and those people are now gone. So I just want to clarify, because it seems that we're lumping any type of post-apocalyptic story into a dystopian framework. Sure. And yeah, I right. Think the, I see what the, you're the, saying. So I think the distinction, drawn, yeah. Yeah, so I think when I'm talking about dystopian comics or dystopian fiction, the idea is that there's been a, a establishment of an order of a sort, that, but the order is inherently flawed. Oh, sure, because uh, like Judge so, Dredd is not post-apocalyptic. It's definitely well, I mean, dystopian, but it's not post-apocalyptic. Uh, it sort of is because basically sort of. you have yeah you basically <laughs> have the United States has been devastated by nuclear war and then everyone's living on the coasts you know in mega cities mm-hmm. and I mean I keep coming back to Judge Red just I think it's a really great example of that so it is post apocalyptic but the idea is that in order to frame or rein in the chaos they create the dre- the judge system right and that's inherently flawed like Judge Red is not a good character that's why or not not a good guy um, yeah. Judge Dredd so has that's sort of attempted to deal with the anarchy that's so ever-present in other post-apocalyptic tales. 
yeah, which is and, what and makes it so interesting. They've attempted to to provide an answer to that to that part of it. Yeah, and I think that's why I think the best Judge Dredd story for anyone that's curious, or maybe wants to to dip their toes into those uh, those murky waters, uh, would be America, which gives a sort of person on the street perspective of what Mega City One is really like. So it's not really celebrating Judge Dredd as a character; it actually presents Judge Dredd as a villain in a sense, and you get to see what it's like for the people actually living in the Mega City, and it's terrible. You know, uh, there's such an establishment of order over justice, even though the judges are supposed to preserve justice, they're preserving order and the status quo. And I think that's sort of the common thread we've seen a lot of this dystopian fiction. V for Vendetta is another great example of that, where you have, you know, a, a tyrannical government controlling everything. And in theory, sure, that prevents that creates order in society. But there's always a, a negative aspect to that. Yeah. I think Transmetropolitan is another great example of that, too, of a world that seems to be semi-evolved from the one that we live in. But when you get, I think there's a there's an issue or maybe a, a trade where you get on-the-ground stories from people, like little one-off stories. And it sounds very similar to this America arc that you're talking about, Paul, where yeah. it's everything's bad. Like, it doesn't matter who you, unless you're the part of the super rich elite, everything's bad for you. Like, you have to, you drown your life in television and media and, and things that are just going to, con, like, consume your uh, attention in yeah. order to distract from all of the terrible things that are going on in your life. And you're doing drugs and you're, you know, doing all these awful things because nothing good is happening. Especially for the disenfranchised or like the super poor or the, you know, the people of different color or in this case, like race, because there's like aliens that are also a part of the, the storyline there. Um, and yeah, to me, that, that doesn't seem like a post-apocalyptic world because the world still exists in its order. But, yeah. you know, the, the whole story taking place in, in the metropolis, you know, that's or the city, as, as uh, Spider-Jerusalem calls it, um, you know, it's, it's terrible for everyone. And that's what Spider-Jerusalem is trying to show, that the government has the ability to fix it. They just choose not to because they prefer their order where they control everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that also harkens back to your 1984, all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that, that gives, that type of story gives... The creators a framework to really do social commentary. And I think I only read the first five issues of Lazarus, so maybe I'm not the best person to talk about it, but I saw that Lazarus being another example of that where it is um, Greg Rucka talking about a caste system, but using that, you know, the idea of a caste system to comment on, you know, our real world right now where you do have the, the extremely rich and the extremely poor, you know, that inequality is what Greg Ruck is talking about, even though it's speculative fiction in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the commentary in Lazarus is is very, very in your face about oh, sure. what it's trying to say. Especially it's a real, back it's a real u- utilitarian approach to, to people. It's, uh, you know, are you skilled? Are you unskilled? What do you offer? What do you have? Uh, and if you have something great, you're part of, um, gosh, I can't remember. It's... Um, it's the families, and then on the other end, it's the waste, and then in the middle, it's um, is it serfs? It's it's not serfs, but I that's the word that comes to mind to me uh, as well. We're skilled. I, I don't remember what it is, but there's you know that very right small middle. Tell us, call us out on Twitter. Tell us what we didn't <laughs> couldn't remember this week. Yeah, <laughs> but no, uh, Lazarus is is very scary in that way because it's either like either you bring something to, to the table or you don't, and like mm-hmm. if you don't. We're not going to help you reach a point where you could bring something to the table. Like, mm-hmm. 
either you have value or you don't and that's it and 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 Lazarus is always a really scary one to me because in a lot of ways we're not that far removed from what Lazarus brings to the table in terms of corporations in terms of consolidation of wealth um, yeah. in terms of its its regard or disregard for um, you know unskilled lower lower class um, you know um, the poor etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, and, and I think that I, I, I always really find tales like that so much more interesting than just this sheer unapologetically large amount that we're getting now of these post-apocalyptic stories where it's like everyone trying to do their fucking hot take on Mad Max where it's like, hey, everyone's dead and you've got a 4 by 4 in the desert and you can do whatever you want and it's just wish fulfillment, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's not terrifying to people. That's like, as I was saying earlier, people like that, like that notion in a weird, sick, or twisted way because it's it's getting to start over <laughs> and not really thinking about the costs involved with that. So um, mm-hmm. stories like The Massive, stories like Lazarus, those are the ones I really enjoy because these writers and these, cre- these creators and their collaborators, like they're not taking the easy way out. You know, they're taking a very grounded approach to, you know, the world doesn't completely end. Like there's still lots of people around and, and nation states are still a thing and, and, and companies or corporations are still existing. And how does power power manage to get consolidated in that scenario? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the appealing things about Lazarus is Greg, Greg Rucka's attempt to keep it grounded in, uh, contemporary science like it's really oh, sure it's, it, it's not a far far flung future it takes place and it's like 15 20 years down the road it's uh, yeah really it's just know? it's a step or two away i mean if you yeah. read about his research going into like the science shit <laughs> yeah. i mean it'll surprise nobody who knows greg rucka but like the man knows what he's talking about like i wouldn't be shocked <laughs> if greg rucka is actually talking to the people that are actually pioneering these things uh i mean go look go look at the research he does for black magic the idea that he does research for any of his books shouldn't shock anyone Mm -hmm. i'm sure he's like an honorary witch at this point for all i know (laughs) (laughs) um do do you guys have any other oh go ahead mike i I was gonna say i guess the so so i think there's a there's a fine line to be said I guess, along those two of post-apocalyptic versus dystopian books. Um, like, what is the appeal of, say, the dystopian future versus the um, the post-apocalyptic one? Because I think we've already we've discussed the latter, where it's like, well, we're looking for a fresh take. We're looking for you know, mm-hmm. a new world where we can rebuild ourselves from this currently, quote-unquote, awful world that we live in. Um, but whereas dystopian books, is it is it reading just for the commentary? Is something like... For, like 1984 or Handmaid's Tale, is that something like people are, are trying to see commentary on then? Well, the hope is that it's commentary. Like the hope with something like <laughs> yeah. Judge Dredd <laughs> sure. is that people yeah. look at it and go, fuck, that's us. Uh, and, yeah. and not that people look at that and go, this guy's a fucking badass. You know, mm-hmm. I hope sure, he kicks sure. five more people in the face by the end of this issue. Like that's that's the danger with, with these sorts of stories and they need to be told, but... You know, as as we've talked about on this show before, um, uh, you know, the author's intent does not always reach the reader. <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, an example of that, I think, is Watchmen. I, you know, it's, it's a legacy endures, you know, maybe to the detriment of the book itself and to comics as a medium because... Mm-hmm. 
Watchmen was supposed to be a book about a dystopian world and a commentary on the Cold War, but everyone that read it simply saw it as being hyper-violent and uh, the sexual content and said, like, mm-hmm. oh, that's what makes an adult comic book is that stuff. That's what makes it an intelligent comic the HBO is sex and violence. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that was evident in the 90s when you just had comics that were just excessive in all the, that sense, whereas Watchmen, it endures for uh, other reasons, and it is that sort of speculative fiction commentary on contemporary society. It might be dated at this point since the Cold War is over, but I think that's what make, <laughs> made the book important at the time versus what the lessons I think a lot of people took from it. Sure. And I think the analysis of that book is something that is always debated about, like, what was Alan Moore trying to say, despite everyone asking Alan Moore and him going, well, you just take what you want from it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, like, uh, I think... He like, cast he a spell was... on me, that idiot. I'm not going to go have an interview with him again. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and I think, you know, his, his commentary was on the Cold War. It was on comic the comic book medium itself and where mm-hmm. the direction he thought it was going. And how oh, and the, the, like, the, taking the state the of the superhero. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the state of the superhero book, where each of the various characters represented a thing in comic books that he maybe didn't like and so Archetypes, wanted to take it yeah. to the extreme yeah he took it to the extreme to say like well here's how it would work and this is maybe why it's not good um even though he was telling a compelling story like because it was it was try- i think it was trying to do multiple things this mm-hmm. is my own hot take on Watchmen. yeah uh, you know having read it a handful <laughs> Thanks, of times like you know <laughs> uh but i mean still it's 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 still an interesting. I mean, it's still going to be there as like a staple to say like this was the the uh, a moment in comics where where someone was trying to tell a story that had commentary and be taken seriously, and it wasn't because of the the, the sexual content or the violence or anything like that. It was the actual story itself. Yeah, yeah. It's a, those are themes that Alan Moore has returned to over and over again. I mean, we mentioned V for Vendetta, Watchmen, his Miracle Man story. It's the same thing mm-hmm. where he's using. It's kind of interesting because I mean. The comic book medium, you know, it's there's still a large chunk of it that's always going to be superhero based just because, you know, the facts are the facts and history is what happened and superheroes what drove comic book sales for decades. Right. Yeah. So you have a sort of inherently utopian idea at the birth of the medium. Superman is an inherently utopian concept. So you have a creator like Alan Moore who's sort of saying, I guess we have this inherently utopian, optimistic idea in the superhero what is the opposite of that? Now, if you take it to its extreme, yeah. it becomes something very different. That's why Miracle Man, his Miracle Man run, is a character that tries to establish a utopian world using his superpowers, but it becomes a dystopia. And I think that's the idea he's been telling over and over again, the same story. is like, as, as much as you want to create a utopian, optimistic future, it's always going to become the opposite. You know, someone's always right. going to be hurt by it. Right, that requires order, and order requires rules, and rules yeah. don't always people don't always agree with. It requires rules and, people step yeah. down after <laughs> they've been put in charge to establish said order. Yes, right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> and we love all this stuff. We we keep reading this stuff. I mean, that, that to, to bring us back to the original question, you know, what's the deal? Why do we keep reading this stuff? It's because we is it is it is it like a wish fulfillment thing where we're trying to say like, well, this is how it would be if things were the absolute worst, and we need to try to prevent that, um, or is it just to say like, well, let's have this what if scenario where every time you fire a gun an angel loses its wings like i i don't know um, i'm writing that comic book by the way <laughs> so i hope you guys are excited for that pitch 
Well, uh, for, for me, increasingly, a lot of these books are, are more and more of like a, a checklist or a, qui- a cliff notes on, you know, I'm, I'm taking notes as I read these things because, uh, you know, I, I need to be prepared. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think, obviously, it's, it's undeniable that uh, it certainly feels a lot these days like... Um, we're you know closing in on the apocalypse or 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 some sort of devastating event and that's not to say that that sort of feeling hasn't permeated history on the whole it's true um, right. i do feel we're there more now than we uh have been in the past uh aka the doomsday clock itself uh not just trying to name drop books in here mm-hmm. and um <laughs> so uh with 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 that in mind it's it's always interesting to to see other people's hot takes on that, and um, uh, hopefully, in a way, you know, uh, try to uh, not get real preachy with people. I mean, it, it seems it's absolutely mind boggling to me that you can't like grab a bunch of like four or five paragraphs about climate change and hand it to someone and they're like yeah i don't i don't believe this it's the it's the chinese with their weather machines or or anything else you'd hear on alex jones um and and people just don't want to hear that so you have to get sneaky and so i guess that's that's always been the appeal for me with comics is that it's it's another way to try to deliver a message to people that might not quite be so on the nose it might not be just so um you know watching your eyes glaze over with facts it's something that's a little bit more approachable um and and Mm -hmm. you just hope and pray that at the end the the takeaway is wow um this makes me think of quite a bit about you know where our our current society is and and maybe that's a moment for for introspection and reflection um you know (laughs) one can hope yeah yeah, yeah. I think that that's the appeal is it's that type of social commentary. I mentioned it in Judge Dredd. I think, like I mentioned, the, the America story is it's right there because the story about how easily fascism can be accepted. So mm-hmm. reading it in contemporary mm-hmm. times uh, is, is eye opening. It's entertaining. It's a great book, but it also makes you think and makes you um, wonder about how easily that stuff can happen. Yeah. Um, and on, on the other hand, you have a book like uh, Commandy, um, the recent Commandy Challenge number nine, which is a fantastic issue. Yeah, it is about a dystopian post-apocalyptic future, but it also offers a slight glimmer of hope and optimism at the same time. So there's, I think you can kind of do both. And for me, I've always found those type of stories really appealing. This idea that telling a story about the real contemporary world through the lens of a dystopia, it, it, it gives creators a great leeway to do social commentary as i mentioned earlier without it being super heavy-handed or too obvious and i've always found stuff like commandy and and even planet of the apes very interesting in a way because they all sort of push this idea that like um (laughs) depending upon what your religious beliefs might be or i guess how how egotistical you are or how optimistic you are about the human race you know the idea that um humans will always be around or that the earth needs humans to to continue to be what it is or or do what it does i mean clearly we've seen in the last few years that quite the opposite might be true um (laughs) um this idea that humanity is is always going to find a way to be around is just it's just not true like 
it's just how it is. And, and certainly something like Commandy is like, hey, we thought humans were gone. You know, we're still existing and thriving as a world. And mm-hmm. we <laughs> we don't need humans at all to, to make this place run. So, um, Like if you want to survive, you better clean yourself up <laughs> yeah yeah is that kind exactly. of the end the end goal there like if you well, want the idea to that like humans this, humans need to move it. off this like pedestal of like you know we're we're gonna be around forever and and we're the smartest brightest best thing out here and uh you know um there's there's no way we're never gonna find a way out of this it's like that's mm-hmm. optimistic and that's great but some people take that to the extreme of of thinking that you know, just we we can sit by passively and and not do anything, and we're always we're always gonna you know after the fact we're gonna find our mm-hmm. way out of something instead of it it it, it's, it just promotes reactive thinking over proactive thinking. I guess is probably the best mm-hmm. way of putting mm-hmm. it. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, there's a whole other uh, discussion to be had about Jack Kirby's approach to these topics. I think. Oh yeah. And o- <laughs> oh, totally. Omac. That might be a topic for another episode. So we could go on for a while about that. But yeah, I yeah. think what's interesting in those books, Kirby is, and I, I think that's evident in issue nine of Commandy challenge that Tom King wrote. Mm-hmm. Jack Kirby always had a belief in, you know, the perseverance of humanity. Like he really was optimistic, but I think there's a subtext where in Kirby's work, he's kind of saying in order for humanity to survive, it might need to become something other than human. And he might need to oh, change. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was, he was always about tra- transformation narratives. Totally. And mm-hmm. he was all, I mean, he, he painted so many different scenarios of the world sort of ending or drastically changing. He was always, I mean, you always saw this in his introductory paragraphs on a lot of his books, you know, this is a world changed or this is a completely Mm -hmm. different world than the one you knew, you know, (laughs) say hello to Mr. Miracle or whatever. He was always, (laughs) he was always looking to the future and saying, you know, things are, things, things are going to be really, really different. And as Paul said, we, we might need to change into, um, whatever, whatever they called Silver Star, I forget. And instead of Homo oh, sapiens, yeah. he's like Homo superior or something like that. You know, that's um, X Men. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right, it's, all right, yeah. cool. Well, I mean, like you said, we could probably go on about Jack Kirby for another episode. I think that's pretty much the central theme of I read comic books in some ways is that we could yeah. always go on more about Jack Kirby. So let's let's wrap this episode up before we di- we fall out into that whole side yeah. episode sure, sure. Um, and maybe we'll do a whole jack kirby's perspective on humans someday we'll see next year 2018 is a big broad humongous world and we can be a part <laughs> of it provided we survive and we don't fall into the dystopian world so uh let's let's wrap up uh where can people find you on the internet nick let's start with you um you can find me on twitter at death star plans that's pretty much it yeah yeah i mean sometimes <laughs> you show up in other places, but it's mostly... Yeah, I'm sometimes in the Goodreads group. You can find me yeah. there occasionally. Paul, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at Polly. You can also hear me talk about professional wrestling on my other podcast, Spike Pile Driver, a professional wrestling podcast. We're on Twitter as well, at Spike Pile Pod. Now, let me ask one question. Paul, sure. do you talk about Jack Kirby on that show, too? <laughs> um, you know, if I ever find an issue where Jack Kirby writes about pro wrestling, I'll be sure to mention on that show as well. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mike Rappin and occasionally on Medium where I write articles. Um, you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast. We retweet stuff and we post polls every Friday such as who is Batman's true son and the results will be very interesting this upcoming Friday. I just say that. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. You can also, as I said earlier, sometimes I'm on uh, the Goodreads group, and I would encourage the rest of you to check that out as well. Um, we have weekly threads. Uh, I think Kate recently set it up so that you can actually post your own threads if you have a, a question that you want resolved or you have a topic you want to talk about. We now have a place for you to put that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we have the monthly, uh, we have two um, book clubs at present, uh, one that is picked by the show and one that is picked by the Goodreads. Um, I think currently, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, I think we're currently voting for the next book. Nominations are open right now. That's what it is. Nominations are currently open for the the next um, group book, so check that out. Um, beyond that, you can go check us out at ircbpodcast.com if that's how you want to listen to our show or check out our weekly poll list picks. Uh, all that information can be found there. And you can also, of course, find us on your favorite podcasting platform, Apple Podcasts, whatever one you use, Stitcher, whatever ones. And if you do that, be sure to rate, review, subscribe. That helps us out. And tell your friends you enjoy the show. I'm sure you have friends that read comics. Even if they don't, they might like hearing us talk about them. Uh, you can also email the show at ircb at destroythesibe.org. Send us questions, commentary, feedback. If you've got a great vegetarian chili recipe, I'd love to have it. Send it our way. That's very email. specific. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we better get at least. This isn't your platform, Paul. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> this is we just will Paul's Craigslist, we'll basically. Yeah, we take all recipes, including yeah. vegetarian chili recipes. Um, <laughs> Infinity Shred does all the music for our show. They're the best band in the universe, and I love those guys. Um, Xander is a cool wizard dude who hides in his hobbit hole and comes out once a month to edit this show And in advance. I don't know how he does it. It's, it's all magic. Um, so, But yeah, you can. I just want to say thank you to everyone. Thank you for all the, to all the Kickstarter backers. Thank you to everybody who listens to the show, shares the show. We love talking to you on the internet and stuff. So thank you for listening, and until next week, we will check you later. <laughs>